0: You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all.
1: How many threads connect puffs of smoke out of the darkness into the light? I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. On this episode, my guest is Liz Wheel, author of A Spy in Plain Sight. She is one of the nation's most prominent trial lawyers. He has served as a federal prosecutor in the U.S. Attorney's Office. We're about to have a conversation about maybe the most damaging spy in the history of the FBI, Robert Hansen. Liz, welcome to the program.
2: Great to be with you. Thank you for having me on there. Now, here's a
1: personal note. I don't want to embarrass you, but this is, I know something about you. This is, the, you this is the first time we're having a conversation, but for many years, I used to listen to Imus in the Morning. Yeah, and you were on it a lot, and I maybe I don't remember it properly. I do remember one time uh, his wife was trying to set you up on dates, and I said, "Listen to that," and laugh. because you you were a great sport. You really were.
2: <laughs> yeah, that was crazy, Deandra. Uh, blonde on blonde days; those were fun days. Yeah, very those much. Fun so. days. Yeah, she 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 really did try to paint me into corners. I mean, that was just kind of her little style, and and they were nice. It was. Um, uh, you know, rest in peace for Don. Um, but they were very, very kind, and it
1: was a lot of fun. I'm a big fan of people know how to interview other people, and he was a master at it. He had his own style, and he could be kind of cranky. But well, that was part oh, of his God. persona. Kinda.
2: Kind of, kind of the, cranky.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh it, it, man, you never knew it was going to happen. I don't mind, but do you tell us what's going on with Deidre and White? Because I still think about that flame family to this day. Do you, are you still in touch with no, them?
2: I they're doing fine. They're um ditters in Texas. You know, they moved to Texas after they sold the ranch in New Mexico, uh, which my daughter and I went to, the kids for um, cancer minus right. right. And um, but they went to Texas. I actually uh visited them in Texas once before Don died. And I think they're doing fine, you know, why it's in school or gosh, pretty much being out almost. Yeah. Um and but it's, it's tough, you know, and Deirdre was just such a loving, loving yeah. wife, yeah. so good to him. I mean, he didn't deserve her in some ways. <laughs> um, you know, she could be, and they would fight, I mean, they would, they would have their bickering on camera and off. Right. But, you know, clearly loved each other very much.
1: Well, I thank you for that update. Now what I like to try to do with a lot of writers is, I think there's two stories when I try to have a conversation, emphasize try. There's a story between the covers of the book, and there's a story outside the covers of the book. And we're going to learn a lot more about Robert Hansen, but a little bit about you. Where did you grow up? What was your life like? And what journey did you take to get here today to talk about this great book, A Spy in Plain Sight?
2: Boy, do you have like you know, a week? We, d- we, do. we do. We <laughs> do. So roll with it. Uh, yeah. No, I, um, I was born to uh, an FBI dad. He was in the FBI when I was little and a mom who had immigrated from Denmark and met my father on a blind date and mm-hmm. they got married. She was a, a first generation immigrant from Denmark. Um, and we traveled around a lot when I was little because my dad got stationed in different places, was stationed in different places. And it was just fascinating though because after he was a fe- uh, FBI agent, he became a federal prosecutor. And so the one rule in our family was that we had to always come together for family dinner, my mm-hmm. brother and myself and my parents. And my mom and dad would talk about their days, right? And and my dad it was a lot about catching the bad guys and you know cops and robbers. And as a kid growing up, they were all stories. Um, I, you know, I didn't realize they were. I didn't think to get really sunk in that they were real people and this is what he was doing. And then my mom was always correcting my grammar and wanting to make sure that I spoke properly and wrote properly. And so between the storytelling of my father. And the law enforcement and third generation federal prosecutor. And even before that, my great granddad was a sheriff out in Washington state, you know, when it was still being settled. Um, And so I have that law enforcement background in me. And my mom, the grammarian and the Ph.D. in English, by the way, and English is her second language. She got a Ph.D. in English literature. A lot of respect for that. I think I was sort of doomed to be a writer. Right. I mean, storytelling and mysteries I would read when I was a kid, I would read. Nancy Drew and Hardy Boys, and you know, all encyclopedia Brown. And I would always try to figure out, you know, the mystery and the red herrings along the way. So I think I was sort of like I said, destined or doomed, however you want to call it, to to be a writer. And I got very, very lucky that I had um, a book agent call me out of the blue when I was actually writing, I was in the middle of writing a law review article for tenure at the University of Washington, which Mm -hmm. I eventually got. Law review articles are boring and tedious and awful, but, you know, they're good, they're good discipline, I guess. Anyway, so he called me and said, you know, I think you have a book in you. And this is the agent now I've had for 20 years. I said, really? I'm sitting there writing a law review article buying a book? Well, that sounds a lot more interesting than what I'm doing right now. And so we met and uh, I got a book deal um, eventually, you know, six months later or something like that to write a two-book deal, and the first book was Winning Every Time, How to Use the Skills of a Lawyer in the Trials of Your Life, because I wanted to sort of impart to people what I had learned as a trial lawyer and what I was teaching in trial advocacy about, you know, how to negotiate, how to not run away from conflict, how to have better relations with your, you know, using all of these skills, better relations with your landlord, your even, you know, your children. And so I wrote that book, winning every time, um, to really to do that. And shortly after I wrote the second book, I said to the agent, my agent Todd, I said, you know, I'd really like to write fiction. And he said, you know, that's a hard jump to make from nonfiction. You published you two nonfictions to do that, and I said, well, but I've always wanted to write mysteries. Right. And so um, so we started doing that. We started that journey. And many many books later, I thought, you know, I'd like to now back jump back into nonfiction. Uh, in a little bit different vein, kind of going after, you know, looking at the criminals and criminal elements and how they have an impact now. So that first book was on Charles Manson. He still has an impact on us today. Certainly the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski, the Manifesto, all of that. And then to get to Robert Hansen was a little bit of a more personal journey. Can I I, I interrupt for a second
1: and ask a question? Because you mentioned the Unabomber. One thing right. I took away from your book, that Robert Hansen was considered the Unabomber of the FBI. Is that an accurate assessment?
2: No, I think that's right. I mean, I think he's even been called that. You know, it's, it's not even you or I making it up. It's other agents saying it. Um, and he was internal. You know, he was inside. The, the, the Unabomber chase is and probably will be for a long, long time, the longest chase, the longest hunt that the FBI has made. It was a 20-year hunt to find this guy. Well, Hansen was doing, you know, duplicitous things and treasonous things for twenty years, but he was within the FBI. So the hunt for him wasn't as long as Unabomber, but his misdeeds certainly were just about as long as the Unabomber, and right in plain sight.
1: This is the second time I'm reading a book. I read the book and interview Craig Unger for Compromot, which is a terrific book, too. And in there right. he goes into Opus Day. And yeah. this is my opinion. I think Opus Dei has penetrated a lot in America, the legal system, the judicial system, um, lawyers, um, uh, people that in high places of power and position, certainly religious community. You also write about Opus Dei early in the book. Can you talk about that and why that fits into your narrative?
2: Well, it does because it fits into Hansen's narrative, right? I mean, he, his persona was devout Catholic. Opus Dei, you know, in that kind of, I'm not going to call it a cult, it's not a cult, but in that, you know, sect of the religion, very strict, disciplined. His kids went to parochial school. I mean, the opening chapter is, you know, with Louis Pree, the head of the FBI, giving the commencement speech where Hanson's sitting in the front row, They're both their boys are in the same class. And so it's important to him. Um, It informs a lot of what happened with him. And we could talk about what happened with his with his priest um, when his wife caught him, you know, with the money. Um, so it informs a lot of him and the way people saw him. They saw him as this devout Catholic. He went to Mass every day. He said the commies were, you know, um, godless people. And so it informs his narrative. And so it became important to me in the book.
1: It's mentioned, funny you mentioned the priest that Jacqueline Kennedy... Also, the only person she confided in after the assassination, maybe even before about her husband, was her priest. He mm-hmm. was the one that she's spoken to. I guess there's a certain inherent trust factor there that maybe sure. you wouldn't tell somebody else that was relatively close to you.
2: Right, right. Sure, but in this in this case, I don't think the priest did the right thing. Um, but, you know, do you want to talk about that, Larry? What happened there, that story? I,
1: I think it's a great story
2: if you don't mind sharing it. Sure, sure. Um, early on in his spine... Hanson's wife, Bonnie found all this money cash in basically a sock drawer, you know, underwear drawer. And she confronted Hansen about it, but she was worried that he was having an affair and he was using that money to, you know, pay for his mistress. Right. And so she, he says to her, and I'm kind of making this a joke. It's not a joke. But he says to her, no, no, you know, I'm not cheating on you. Um, I'm just fine for the Russians. And she's much relieved. Um, if you can believe it and she's like, okay well let's go to our priest um because we're devout catholics we're up to stay you know we go to the priest he'll help us figure out what to do so they go to the priest and the priest basically says you know spying bad don't do it again right um and i'll absolve you of your sin if you just give the money over to the church which he does and the money over to church that you know that he that he gotten so far from the, the russians and he does he gives over you know tens of thousands of dollars and the and that's it you know i mean nothing else i know there is a priest um parishioner uh, confidence you know that you can't be broken right but that wasn't what was happening here it wasn't a confession right because three people were there so it can't be a confession so i don't think it would be covered by privilege but the priest never said anything and what happened is Hanson gave over the money but started up spying again and, you know, Bonnie never found any more money in soft drawers.
1: Right. This is Larry Davidson. This is the podcast for Periscope. My guest is Lise Will, both fans of Imus in the Morning and Don Imus and his family. Her new book is called A Spy in Plain Sight. So we got a little bit about your background. Thank you so much, because I really believe that if you're going to pick up a book and invest your time in a book, I don't care if it's fiction or nonfiction that you'll learn a lot more and get uh, garner more insights by learning about the person who created the book. So I appreciate you sharing with us. Sure. So let's talk about Robert Hansen's background. Where did he come from? What was he brought up like? I know he had a tough relationship with his father, but was did that make him the man he became later on as probably the most damaging spy in the history of the FBI? Right.
2: I mean, it, it's, I'm not a psychologist, so it's hard for me to pin it down that way. But, you know, he had a, he had basically, you know, a decent upbringing, middle-class upbringing. Um, in the Midwest, his father was a cop and very, very tough on him. I mean, I think all of us would say what he did to him, to Hanson, was child abuse. I mean, mentally and physically abusing him. And, you know, I think Hanson always felt that he was trying to reach to his father's potential reach to what his father wanted right, right. so certainly where there was that you know, maybe there was insecurity because of how his father treated him but you know i'm sorry I mean, this is maybe me being cynical because i was a federal prosecutor and i saw so many people coming through with their sob stories and how they got there you know and um a lot worse than Hanson, a lot worse backgrounds than hansen and you know people have are abused as children and they don't go out and commit right, crimes right Right. So and the same thing was said about the Unabomber. Well, the Unabomber wasn't close to his mom. You know, there was there was a detachment that happened because he got sick once in his child. He went to hospital. I'm, I, you know, I'm sorry. <laughs> and this is me being a federal prosecutor or just being leased, You know, it's just I, it, that's not an excuse. It, it helps you understand a person and their background, but it's not an excuse for what he did.
1: There's some names in this book that are familiar. To me, and I assume many others, Aldrich Ames, for one, right. Robert Hansen. Now, I watched the movie Breach, which was a terrific movie. Chris Cooper right. does a great job. And that's my framework for my understanding of him and, o- and O'Neill that worked with him at the end where they were kind of setting him up to be captured. Your book goes way beyond that. How difficult it was to put all these p- people in places into your narrative? Because you know, people can't see this, but you're smiling, but you've got a background as a federal prosecutor. I believe your author's note in the beginning of the book, in my observations, was a form of a legal brief. You're setting everything up, and then the book unfolds, but you had to put a lot of time and effort into getting to the core of – robert hansen the fbi the cia department of justice there's just so much in this book that is so
2: relevant today as we speak right and that's one of the reasons i wanted to write about hansen because i felt like his story was relevant today and little did i know how relevant but i'll get to that in a moment um yes i was i was mentioning to you off air before we started that i just got them from a hike and on the hike i was talking to my friend she said how long did it take you to do this and i said oh my gosh we're at the end of June, um, this, uh, three years ago, I was starting the process of figuring out who I was going to try to get as, you know, to interview and putting that module together, like, you know, all the names, trying to get contacts, all of that, three years. So the actual writing probably only took, you know, a year and a half, but two years maybe, and then, you know, promotion and all of that, but um, a long time. And you're right, it was really kind of a a detective sleuthing method for me, trying to go to one person, and then that person would lead me to another person, et cetera. And that worked really well. And you got to understand, Larry, that um, I have a little bit of an advantage over, you know, a normal, (laughs) in parentheses, journalist. And that is because I have been a federal prosecutor, and my dad was in the FBI. So when I call these agents... I lead with that, and they can look up my dad in the register. They can look me up. I wrote this book about the Unabomber and the FBI. It was very fair to the FBI in that book, and so I have a very good relationship with them. And they're not going to hang up the phone. Nobody hung up on me, as they might just a, a quote, regular journalist, um, because it's sort of federal family, you know, um, respect, and so. I got the interviews and as I said, one led to the other led to the other, but I was amazed. You know, I got the, the best friend of Hanson, Jack Hoshower. He and I still are in contact, right. you know, right. um, Mike, Mike Rochford, you're still in contact, you know, many of these agents still in contact and but that, that takes a while to develop that rapport and that relationship to the point where they're willing to go on the record and, and we tape them and all of that. So it's, it's a long process. So I have a bunch of
1: questions, but you mentioned his best friend, almost to the very end, he was the best friend. And this, oh, still, spe- is. Still, yeah. is. this spe- still is this, spe- this speaks to the mindset, the personality almost being a deviant with he letting, letting his best friend watch him having sex <clears throat> with his wife. Now, I, you know, I know, I don't, I don't like being salacious. This is, this is not Oprah. I'm trying to give people a gasp right. and a cry, but this is so illuminating. I think so illuminating about the man that he let his best friend do this.
2: Oh, wanted him to. And sent, and more than that, sent him, when Jack was, you know, um, uh, in, in in Vietnam, he sent him, Hansen sent him pictures Hansen Hanson. Hushauer opens this envelope from Hansen and it's, Polaroids of Bonnie nude, you know, in the shower and all of this, and it's just like shower was shocked, right? Um, and and you're right, things like you know, look, come in. There's a people in the shower. You can watch, or you can watch us having sex. I mean, it, it's it's disgusting. But that's the other part of Hanson, right? He's very compartmentalized, and I learned that from Dr. Charney, the psychiatrist, the psychiatrist who saw him for a year. And did the the profile on him, correct?
1: Uh, Didn't he do the psychological profile on him when he was captured and incarcerated?
2: Right. Because what happened is the defense lawyer hired a psychiatrist to go and really, you know, get the down low on Hanson, so perhaps they could, you know, mount an insanity defense or, you know, diminished capacity or something like that. But Charney, far from that, I mean, Charney was amazing with me. I got to him through the CIA agent's um, wife, widow, who was wrongfully accused. So I got to Charney through Patricia McCarthy. And Charney was just very illuminating because I asked him, you know, all about motive, I asked him about psychology. And he said that Hansen almost more than anyone else he's interviewed or been with, and he's, you know, been a psychiatrist to so a lot of high profile criminals compartmentalized. Right. He was so able to compartmentalize his life. And and we all do that a little bit. We compartmentalize things. We have to, to kind of, you know, do this and do that. But um, he did it to a point where he was able to, you know, to the outside world, maintain this Catholicism and devout guy and all of that. Meanwhile, he's cheating on his wife, and he's doing all the salacious stuff with the hose shower, and he's spying for the Russians.
1: So I'm going to reset. I'm going to get back a little bit later the CIA agent, uh, Kelly, because I think he was – this is my quotations underlying. He was collateral damage. And that really bothered me about another person, Rochford, I think his name is, who looked at him as collateral damage. It was just like, well, too bad. You know, this is a great quote for the greater good. Well, the greater good sometimes can bring a lot of damage to people on the periphery and close to that. So let's okay. reset. My guess is Liz Wheel the new book is called Spy in Plain Sight. This is the podcast Awful Periscope and I'm not that important but I'm Larry Davidson. So this <laughs> is this is another question about process. You you kind of touched upon this. You are trusted because of your background. Right. You've had you had a you've had a very high profile media. You've been on NPR, Fox News, a, a lot of places so you're very well known. How do you handle anonymous sources now i will not know who the sources are but people inside your world may very well know who you're referencing is that a problem or is that okay with the people that came on the board as anonymous sources
2: um you know obviously i know who they are but i protect my sources and these are people who wanted to talk to me and who i, I knew who they were right i got them Right. So they were very well credentialed. This isn't just somebody off the street. They were very well credentialed to say what they had to say. But you got to realize I interviewed a lot of FBI and CIA agents and officers who are still in. Right. And, you know, I mean, a lot of them obviously would be anonymous. And there were other people that wanted to be anonymous for different reasons. And if I know that the source is good because I've gotten to them for a certain reason, I'll use it. You know, I'll absolutely use it, and I'll protect the identity um, because, you know. Well, let me give you a good example. Hoshaw, or, or sorry, Rochford, for example. I said to him, "You know, can you tell me the identity of the the Russian who finally gave over the intel on Hanson that led eventually I'm to the?" I'm just Iraq. going
1: to interrupt one more time. Just yes. give us the background because he's a, he's a big player in the book. He's the one character that really irked me, and based on what I said, collateral damage. Give us his background Russell. and his role in this whole story.
2: Yeah, Rochford was, uh, he's now retired, but was top-level FBI agent, and he was in the counter-espionage unit. So he was in charge of recruiting assets in Russia, for example, Um, and and other other places too, but Russia. And what I mean by recruiting assets is getting people there on the ground, whether it's Russia, North Korea, China, to work for us, to be spies for us. And that's not just what we do, and we pay them, and we need them. You know, polit- politicians and everybody, they can tell us what's going on, but we need people on the ground, you know, informing the FBI and the right. CIA. Right. So, Rochford, that was his job, to recruit, you know, recruit these folks on assets. And, you know, what led to the hunt for a mole was, finally, Rothschild sort of woke up one day and said, holy darn, you know, there aren't any more Russian assets. They're all dead. They've been executed. So somebody must be telling the Russians the identity of these assets, and we must have a mole here somewhere. They didn't know at the ICA, but we must have a mole here um, because that's why the Russian assets are dying. So he really, and then he he is on the Hanson hunt, he's on the Brian Kelly hunt. He figures very, very prominently. And he was, he was fabulous to me in the sense that he trusted me enough that he gave me other contacts. Um, Don Sullivan, other people, other agents who said, you know, and then I was able to pick up the phone and say, Rochford said I could call you. Right. And that helped a lot as so.
1: well. So I'm gonna get a lot of criticism, but I don't ask this question. I'm probably gonna say because they know very little about Robert Hansen. Why did Robert Hansen become a spy slash mole in the FBI? <laughs> For first the Soviet Union, and then he took a period off, I think from nineteen seventy nine to nineteen eighty five, then I believe it was Russia. Why? Right and it has to be more there was a lot of money changing hands. And also, quick aside, he was offered diamonds and wouldn't take diamonds. So that's a great story, too. So I'm throwing a lot of stuff at you, but no, you're, no, much, right, right, right. you're much more capable of mind handling a couple of thoughts at one time.
2: Well, but you, what you're talking about, you boil it all down, is motivation, right? What motivated him to, to go from being an FBI agent, which is what you know his father had wanted, and what he said, so he made the grade there. You know, He's an agent. That's a really cool thing to be an FBI agent. But— there were a lot of things going on. Let's money first. Right. Um, as I said, he put his kids through parochial school, private school. When he moved to New York, he moved to Scarsdale, which, as you know, is a very expensive suburb, probably too expensive for an FBI agent. You know, my dad actually left the, uh, the agency, the bureau, um, when they were in a transfer to New York because he said, look, I've got this little girl my wife and i just, just don't think i can afford to you know i'll never see them because i will be living so far away from the city right but you know he stays in scarsdale when he goes to you know when he goes to dc he gets to the fancy suburb as well so he needed the money all right So money is a motivator i don't that i don't think that would ever be enough i think bringing jack hoshauer told me that hansen from the early early days when he was very young had this fixation with James Bond. I mean, everything James Bond. So you've got a guy who wants to be glamorous, wants to have the gadgets, wants to um, you know save damsels in distress, all of that kind of thing. And yet Hanson himself is this kind of dour, they called him the mortician because he always wore black. He's right. nothing like a James Bond character, right? But he wanted that. He um, was a disgruntled employee. To put it simply, he thought he was smarter than anyone else in the room. We all know people like that we try to stay away from them, (laughs) but he always had to be the smartest guy. And he felt like, you know, the FBI guys around him just weren't as smart as he is, kind of dullers. You know, why didn't they appreciate him enough? Why didn't they give him more accolades? Why didn't they love him? All that. And, you know, he just, he had this narcissistic personality where he felt like, I'm just not being appreciated enough. And then the Russians on the on the other side, once he approached them, and he approached them, by the way, not the other way around, were, you know, just flowery letters and outpourings of love and friendship and all of this. Thought you know, Hansen even thought he might retire to Poland. I mean, it, it was that kind of appreciation of his smart, of his intelligence, of his genius that he loved. He loved it because he was a He's a narcissist.
1: So and we always do a tease leading into the program. I write them, some of them are okay, some are not so okay, and some are right on the money. But in the tease, I mention puffs of smoke. I call them connecting the dots or red crumbs. If I was only going to do one interview with you, I would do, just do that chapter, because that chapter, puffs of smoke, there's a lot of evidence there pointing to him, but this poor guy in the CIA, in terms of the profile, Kelly, is who they're going after. So, what happened with the culture inside the FBI? It's almost like um, concentric circles. There's a close concentric circle, there's a middle ring, and then there's an outer ring. And sometimes they don't come together. So, these puffs of smoke, which should have raised red flags, never happened. Why?
2: I think the bottom line is that the FBI did not want, didn't police itself. You know, it's a culture of trust. Um, You're in there, you're trusted. And I understand that to an extent. I mean, these guys and gals are out there, you know, with with guns and they're arresting people and they're doing dangerous stuff. I mean, you know, 99.9% of FBI agents are really terrific people, you know, with all the right motivations. You got to trust your partners. You got to trust the people around you. But, you know, to coin that old expression, trust but verify. And they didn't with Hanson. They didn't polygraph them. They didn't update his financial disclosures or his background checks. And they just didn't, when they discovered there was a mole, they didn't want to think that it could be one of them. Right. And that blinded them, that blinded them in the search, you know, for, for the real mole.
1: So I want to mention another character in the book, Dmitry Polakoff, if I'm pronouncing it wrong, please correct me. He was considered the crown jewel for American intelligence. And what was Hanson's role I guess, to expose
2: him. Absolutely to expose him. I mean, Hanson, in his first communique, uh, which with Cherkoshin, who became his handler, his Russian handler, he gave over the identity of Poliukov, also called Top Hat. And that identity was corroborated, and they picked him up, Poliukov, They executed him in the most, no trial, they just executed him in the most heinous, horrible way involving fire and it's just ugly. Um, And they put that on videotape to deter other, you know, potential would-be spies. And that was Hansen's first communique, that was Hansen's entree into the Soviets, into the Russians. where now then they trusted him because they got this great intel from him. Right. And that began the relationship. And again, as I said, the flowery letters, the adulation, all of that. But he, he is, he's got Polyakov's blood on his hands and other of our assets on his hands because it just went from bad to worse. Right. He just kept giving over the identity of these, of our assets. And, you know, the Russians are, are big on trials, right? They just kill them, execute them. So, hansen though he didn't you know shoot anybody or knife anybody sort of like manson um is responsible for multiple deaths
1: well, we, we're going to reset again my guest is liz wheel the book is called spy in plain sight on larry davidson this is the podcast artful periscope even today uh we can't separate and divorce ourselves from geopolitics. so after the soviet union falls and becomes russia there is a different point of view in terms of hansen in the svr in the GRU. Can you talk about that? Because that's really illuminating about how our enemies are dealing with Hans- Hansen in a different way. Because he delivered a lot of things to the old Soviet Union. But with the change in the Soviet Union and even Putin coming in, who was an ex KGB agent anyway, that they that, those two intelligence organizations, whatever you want to call them, espionage organizations, had different points of view on how to handle or not handle Hansen.
2: Right. I mean, when Putin came in and the change was made at that time, our posture in the FBI and our you know our country was, hey, let's, t- let's take a step back. You know, maybe let's deal with them in a friendly way. Maybe this change is a good thing. Right. Maybe there's going to be more there's going to be some democracy or hope there. And so it was more of a kid glove relationship, you know, official relationship, and also with our our assets. I don't think, though, that, you know, there was really much of a difference. There certainly wasn't any difference in the intel that Hansen was giving. He was still giving over identities of our assets, you know, nuclear secrets, the identity of where, um, the location of where our president, vice president were at any given time. The Russians wanted to take them out. And, so, you know, whereas our position as a country, the FBI, towards, towards the Russians have changed a bit. Hansen's delivery of information just went right on. I mean, there was, there was a gap, you're right, but then it picked up again and went right on. And was still his name.
1: Now, um, I'm trying to understand the world around me. And there's been a lot of conversation these days about the role of inspector generals. And if you know your history, prior to Watergate, they didn't exist. They came after Watergate. And the irony there is the former attorney general, two-time attorney general, William Barr did not believe in inspector generals. He wanted to get rid of them. He thought it was an overreach of government power, and that's part of his inherent philosophy, political philosophy. So what role did the inspector generals play in dealing with the FBI, dealing with the CIA and trying to make sure what happened with Hanson, Aldrich Ames, Pollard, Block, and then then a list of many names that you know better than I, what role did they play if they did play a role in kind of quote unquote in commonality language, cleaning up the mess?
2: Well, first off, uh, they saved his life, Hanson's life, because he was looking at, you know, treason is punishable by by death penalty here in this country. And he was looking at that, but the inspector general, the attorney general at the time said, no, uh, we'd rather take take the death penalty off the table. We'd rather give him life in prison without the possibility of parole. If he'll give over to us all the information that he gave to the Russians, we've got to debrief him many times to brief Bonnie. Uh, and when we're satisfied, we will take death penalty off the table. So first thing, they, they, they saved his life. They also were the body to which the FBI had to go to get warrants and things like that, and to keep them apprised of the investigation that was ongoing. But the investigation itself was really only handled by the FBI. Sure, they checked in with the attorney general and the inspector general, and they had to get court orders, things like that. But it was all led by the FBI and what the FBI was finding in the matrix they were putting together, Mm -hmm. a literal, literal matrix. Define the
1: uh find the all So I knew somebody that was involved with the Warren Commission, Dr. Michael Baden, a medical examiner from New York, and I interviewed Michael and and his wife, uh who's also a criminal defense attorney. I'm sure you guys cross paths. So I know. The- uh, so I think about the Warren Commission. So I'm going to jump from there because some people still question it. You had the Webster Commission. Webster uh, Commission. 137 pages. Anything come out of that that came to brought about real change, and you're smiling. So I know you have an opinion.
2: Yeah, it's funny because some of the agents that I spoke with said, you know, kind of roughly, uh, um, "What were these, you know, twenty-something-year-old federal prosecutors coming in and asking us all this stuff about? They don't, you know, they don't know. They don't live in the real world. You know, we did our best, Um, but the bottom line of all those pages from the Webster Commission is, is what I had said before, which is. The FBI didn't police itself. That was the mistake. They didn't look internally quickly enough. And that culture has to change. You know, so what was implemented? Things like, you know, it will never happen again, I hope, that uh, somebody's in the FBI for 20 years and doesn't get a security clearance, you know, every five years. I had one as a federal prosecutor. After five years, they did a whole brand new security clearance. And the reason for that is... You know, life changes. Your money needs change, for example. You might be more susceptible to a bribe. Uh, something's happened in your life. And so they stay on top of that. And you know it as a federal employee, a prosecutor, an agent, you know going in that that's gonna happen, that you can be polygraphed, you can be you know, drug tested. I didn't I didn't eat poppy seed bagels <laughs> because yep. the, the poppy, you know, couldn't be opium. So, um, you know, because I knew that that could happen anytime, any day. And that was just part of the gig. That never happened with Hanson. So that has changed now that there are security clearances. There are updated all of that. And so there are more security measures. But really, you know, what the Webster Commission found was just that the FBI screwed up because they didn't want to look internally.
1: So let's talk about the ultimate screw up of your Robert Hanson. I believe he has four and a half months to go to retire. (laughs) He does one more drop what was i mean i i, I mean, this you can't make up and once again i watched the movie breach you see the whole thing unfold you know and it's, it's dramatic and i don't know how much was accurate you can tell us if the movie is really accurate four and a half months he would have skated he would have been free Right. right. does one more drop of course now they're surveilling him now they put him in a special assignment where they could check him keep an eye on him 24 7. what was Did he, he
2: thinking Right. He doesn't know, obviously, that they're surveilling him, but they, they found out, you know, moving fast forward, they found out the identity that it was Hanson, but they got the the intel, and the intel was basically an audio cassette that, you know, you could hear audio of him speaking with your caution, and they got a fingerprint, but it was really the audio that did it, because they could audio identify him, um, and oh my gosh, that's Robert Hanson, but Think about that situation right there. All right, they realize they have the mole, but their only evidence came from a Russian who is now in witness protection. Right. In this country, that's you know that's what I'm saying. Roxford never gave me over that identity. Was but that no,
1: was that PIM? They're talking. You're talking about they gave they gave all the audio tapes and brought them with him from Russia. Was that
2: PIM? It, PIM was not the was not the source. Okay. Rochford will, will never sit. I'll go to my grave we will never tell who that person was because it wasn't Mr. Pam, because if I do, they will be, they will be the Russians will kill. Him. Right. So, you know, he wouldn't tell me that. And I appreciated that. I backed off right away because I don't even really know that I wanted to. Um, well, I guess I did. But anyway, I don't know if I printed um, He, you know, he brought you was really, you know, a part of that and a part of that investigation or such a big part of it. But so anyway, looking at the evidence they had. They have this Russian in witness protection who they paid $7 million to. So, you know, what are you going to do to put him on the stand? No, you can't do that. So they had no evidence. And they had four months, as you say, to mandatory retirement with Hansen. But so what they did is they set up a fake job for him. Um, they, you know, to the point where they, you know, gave him a new office with cameras, of course, all in it and all this high tech equipment. And that's where O'Neill comes in, the FBI agent comes right. in, because he was assigned to his assistant, to be his assistant. And they set it all up, you know, to monitor him, to hope that he would make one more drop. And he does. And that's where they catch him.
1: So I want to talk about one other person, and we'll, we'll, we've will got a few more minutes with you, if you don't mind, because this, this book is am- amazing, and I, and I value your time with us. Um, the CIA agent who was profiled and targeted, right. as the Mo Kelly. He paid, not just him, his whole family paid a huge price. He died relatively young from a heart attack, and you can probably contribute what he went through in terms of being under the spotlight and the limelight f- from the CIA. Once again, I consider Roachford, consider him as, as collateral damage, and that really bothered me in case I'm inaccurate about my assessment. So just talk a little bit about him, because he did. He was one of, the, of Hansen's victims in this country.
2: Absolutely. I mean, what happened was they, they had, when Rochford figured out that um, there was a mole, they, they gathered a group of agents and they put them in what they call the vault room. So they call them the vault people. I mean, just, you know, windowless. And those people came up with this matrix. And the matrix was about who had information when about who, right? And Brian Kelly, the CIA agent, hit the matrix that they put together. He knew this. He'd been, he was just a really good agent. Right. He was a really good agent. And um, they said it's him. They arrest him. They they polygraph him, and the polygraph was ridiculous. And I talked to the polygrapher who did it. Um, they they accost his children and his wife. They they even uh, threatened to go to his mother, who's living in an assisted living place, it would just have killed her. Um We know all of this, that's all all on the record. What we didn't know, or I didn't know, speaking with Patricia McCarthy, his widow, by the way, a trial lawyer, really, really nice woman, was that, you know, the toll that it took on him. And, you know, yes, he died young. He said, you know, certainly this contributed to that. Um, And, yeah, calling him collateral damage. I mean, because what happened is, Then after they figured out it was Hanson, they had a meeting about, well, do we tell Kelly that, you know, we're not on him anymore? And they decided, no, no, we need to wait because we don't want to tip Hanson off. So, so Kelly's there for all that time that they're, you know, setting up Hanson and he's being painted as the worst spy ever. And, you know, it's devastating for a guy who was so upstanding and, and, um, and and devoted, really, to the agency.
1: So a quick aside. The strangest guy I ever interviewed was a CIA polygrapher. He was Uh one strange dude. He really was, but I did multiple interviews with him program I had called Riders at the Vine on the Vineyard on Long Island. He also did my radio and television programs in the past. I have never forgotten him, but I think he was more atypical who worked for the CIA than the people that, that you know. So we tend to write, end every segment with something I call, what did I miss? What did I get wrong? So, Liz Wheel, what did I miss? What did I get
2: wrong? You may have missed just the, the absolute duplicity of this guy, you know, the compartmentalization that Charney talked about. I found that mind boggling. I also found, and this this was really frightening and still is, we talk about relevancy. When I asked, when I did all these interviews with the FBI agents and CIA operatives, I asked them all, I said, could there be another Hanson today? And to a one, to a person, they said yes, And then many of them, you know, unprompted by me, followed up with, and there probably already is. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about that and and Russia, especially now vis-a-vis Ukraine, that is really frightening stuff, to think that we could have another mole. And at this time, it would be a better mole because Hansen was copying things off on the Xerox machine. He was stuffing his briefcase full of paper, all of that, and walking out. Now, you don't need to do that. You just put it up in the cloud, put it on thumb drive, whatever, and you walk out with no evidence on you. And a computer hacking, cyber hacking, cybersecurity, all of that is somewhat easier to do than the old fashioned stuff that Hanson did. And that's very frightening, I think, and very frightening, especially in today's culture.
1: One last question, because I've been glued to the TV set, watching the J6 hearings, and um, we we're recording this podcast after the last one, where um, the speaker's person
2: yeah.
1: um, testified yesterday in DC, yeah. and it was explosive. Uh, I, I don't know if it opened up any eyes outside of the world, your world, in, in a sense, my world. Um, 24-year-old woman, by the way. know. Yeah, very brave. B- very brave. She's getting some hits already saying that some of the stuff that happened in the limousine. It wasn't the beast, by the way, that the president was in, was in. It was a suburban. So these things could have happened. Some people were saying it didn't happen. But that's just a small thing to focus on. But what she talked about and your background and nobody's above the law and the legal system and the Department of Justice as a federal prosecutor, I'd really like to know your thoughts and your reactions to what we're witnessing today in American history.
2: It's just, uh, these hearings are illuminating and I think we all need to be paying attention to them. And this woman who testified, I mean, even if, even if she got a few things, you know, inaccurate, um, let's just, let's just say that. I don't, I'm not saying that that's true, but let's just, let's just give that away. Still, (laughs) still, You know, if half the things she's saying are true, it's just extremely frightening. And, you know, getting back to sort of the mole and the FBI at the very top of the administration, your boss upon boss upon boss, the president himself is cozy with the Russians, um, embracing Putin and, you know, taking the Russian side on many things. That's that trickles down. And anyone who could be thinking about being a spy, they can glom onto that and say, oh, it's not so bad. Look, our president loves the Russians. You know, we should get closer to the Russians. Maybe I'm even doing something good by spying. Right? People have to rationalize what they do. And so the effect from the top on down in these situations can't be um, can't be diminished. Right. It has to be understood. It's, this is crucial stuff, and it has a, a huge impact on all of us.
1: What I can say is you've elevated from the bottom to the top this particular podcast. My guest has been <laughs> Liz Wheel. Her book is called Spy in Plain Sight. Liz, thank you so much. I appreciate oh, all of your time.
2: You very, absolutely. Have a wonderful day and, and enjoy Long Island.
1: We will. Thank you so much. After the break, some final thoughts. I'm Larry Davidson. This is the podcast Artful Periscope. We were right.
0: The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com.
1: Hi, I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome back to the podcast. Artful Periscope, coming from
0: the Sachin Public Library. We love
1: it here in the booth, and I call it the studio, they call it the booth, but that's okay. They let me call it the studio, and they're not going to throw me out till I'm done, which is coming up shortly. So, I want to I thank once again... Liz Wheel, her book, *A Spy in Plain Sight. So I've been thinking about acts of nobility. And I'm kind of late to the game in terms of streaming. And I just finished binging all the episodes of Bosch. Bosch is based on Michael Connolly's books. I had a chance years ago to interview for my radio and television program the great, great crime fiction writer and former newsman Michael Connolly. In one of the episodes of Bosch, and I did all the seasons, a great character, great cast, really captures the essence of who this man is. And Bosch, Harry Bosch, is kind of paints outside the lines, but has a code, a code, a real code of ethics. And there's one, uh, one season where he's undercover and he's tracking shipment of drugs, so he's undercover, and he goes in as a guy who's addicted to uh, a drug. And he goes to a drug clinic, and then he gets – from there, he goes undercover, and he ends up being transported someplace in the desert of California where, where they are used and sent as drug mules to transport drugs back and forth across the border and things like that. And I'm thinking about these acts of valor. And it's a very small thing. A very small thing. In this episode, there is a stray dog in this camp in the middle of nowhere. And Bosch being Bosch sees the animals hungry and thirsty, and he kind of feeds him and kind of takes him in in his undercover persona. And one of the guys working in terms of transporting the drugs back and forth pulls his gun out and is about to shoot the dog. Now, this gets me on many levels because I'm a dog lover. I've had dogs over the years, many dogs, and I cared about all of them. And Guy points the gun down to the dog, and Bart says, you can't shoot him. Shooting a dog is bad luck. A minor but a very interesting observation about an act of valor doing the right thing. And later in the season, because in this group of people who are serious, they're addicted to opi- opioids, and all of them are veterans. So they're coming out of their experience in the war with PTSD and physical damage and mental damage. And he meets this woman who's there along with him. And eventually, the case is solved in a sense, or what the undercover aspect is solved. And they all come back to California, Bosch's, and the Hollywood district of the of the of the PD department, Hollywood section, whatever you want to call it. And he takes, tries to help her, tries to help her. Another act of valor with Bosch's belief about how you take care and handle people. And ultimately, sad to say, he can't save her, but he tries. He tries and he tries. And who out there that I'm speaking to, who I know my personal life and professional life, believes in doing the right thing, acts of valor, even though you will never be recognized and only you and the other person or even a pet or a dog or whatever you really care about, who you rescued and helped, will ever know about. That's something to ponder. I'm Larry Davidson. This is the podcast, Awful Periscope. Till next time, bye-bye.
0: The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisifaro. Sound editors and engineer Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all.
2: We'll be back sometime in the future. Take care. Bye-bye.